Hi, I'm Camille. Hi, I'm Calvino. My name's Harini, and this is The News Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing fashion and fast fashion, which I guess at first glance might not really seem like a feminist issue. But as far as an industry goes, it is a highly feminised one on both the production and consumption side of things. In terms of consumption, you have a female consumer maybe who's often held by Western standards of beauty and her insecurities are exploited in a way to market and sell clothes basically. And then on the production front, you've got the, well, most often female garment worker who's efforts go unnoticed despite the fact that she barely gets paid minimum living wage is exploited sexually and often has to work in incredibly unsanitary conditions so that kind of leads us on to the trigger warning for today's episode because we do talk about sweatshops and the women who are I guess at the crux of the fashion industry and they are quite brutally exploited you know financially physically and in all the other ways I discussed I completely agree. Now, for me, what is far and away the most important aspect of the fashion industry is, as you say, the women actually making the clothes. And I say women because according to the Clean Clothes campaign, 80% of garment workers are women. And even though when we think about sweatshop workers, this is actually an image that we conjure up quite quickly, much more than that of men. We seldom ask ourselves why this is actually happening. And one of the reasons cited by the, the charity is that because women especially in less economically developed countries, have so many extra duties placed on them by the patriarchy as a whole, whether that be through their culture, their their upbringing, or even specifically their religion. For example, cleaning and cooking and childcare, all of which take up a lot of time. And therefore it's beneficial for the factory owners to employ them and to employ women more than men, because they simply don't have time to campaign against this abuse or look for better employment until they find the perfect job, which is something that we take for granted in many western countries and as we should it absolutely should be a right that you know full well that if someone demands something from your job that you're not at all being paid to give and I'm talking as in like sexual favors there should be nothing standing in your way for you to report them for them to have penalties and for you to look for a better job but to be honest that dichotomy in itself is one of the biggest arguments against feminism since the beginning of the movement as often the women who need enfranchisement the most are the ones with the least time and resources to give. And that's why intersectional feminism is so important rather than, you know, what's been called white feminism in the past, because we need to be campaigning and striving for the rights of all women and not through ourselves. And not just ourselves. So I think that that's why it's so important to actually be talking about these garment workers in this episode and not just the impact that it has on on us Western women. So, for example, women interviewed in an Indonesian factory reported that male managers would, and this is where the trigger warning comes in, would call girls into their office, whisper in their ears, touch them, bribe them with money, or threaten them with firing if they don't have sex with them. And this was a testimony that came up time and time again in all of the interviews done with the garment workers from all of these countries, because according to Cornell University and the charity called Care, Of the 70 million women garment workers in the world, 35 million of them are specifically in Asia and the Pacific. So for context, 70 million is twice as many people as live in the whole of Canada put together, making clothes largely for the richer half of the world, like, for example, the UK. Now, another thing that stops these women from having equal pay and also just simply equal rights is pregnancy. 
because there is a system in many of these countries of forcing women to take a pregnancy test during the recruitment process and making them sign a contract that they won't get pregnant while working in the factory or they can be fired. Now, obviously, this is also an issue that Western women face in terms of feeling discriminated against if they are of an age, in inverted commas, obviously there's no set age, where employers think that they're going to start getting married and starting families. And while this absolutely should not be happening in any countries, obviously it's a very different kettle of fish to being forced to take a pregnancy test in front of your future employers. Now, it also goes without saying this is seldom their choice at the time that these women get pregnant. What with the lack of contraception, the cultural disagreement with the use of contraceptives in many different cultures and religions, and the fact that marital rape is not seen as a crime in many places, not least because even consent of any form is not seen as freely given and reversible, it's seen as a contract and many husbands will see, still see their wives as commodities. And if that weren't the case, we wouldn't need feminism anymore. Now, luckily, I do need to stress there are projects being put into place to protect these workers. For example, ICARTA in Bangladesh, which I found in my research for this, which stands for Empowerment, Knowledge and Transformative Action. And it teaches women what the law actually is surrounding their rights as workers and empowering them to stand up for themselves and also, crucially, their colleagues to spark more and long-lasting change. It even helps them find lawyers that will protect them. So in many ways, it works like a trade union. This was especially useful during COVID-19 when employers were laying off workers all over the world, but that many of these women were affected by not having been given a severance package, not being given their last salary, and often being fired with zero days notice. Some of these women were even actually the main income earners in their household due to their husbands losing jobs, and also due to the rise in homeschooling their children as schools shut so they could have a better life than previous generation did so it becomes such a complicated issue but actually there's a reason why so many more women are employed in sweatshops and it really is not one uh, that is a positive change for gender equality in any way yes and leading on from those sorts of movements there's also the idea of consumers themselves buying more sustainably which is great right the idea that we should be more aware of where our clothes come from I mean the onus is actually well, it should actually be on the brands to increase transparency here, but decreasing the misinformation shoppers have about where their clothes are made by doing their own research is a great first step. And also buying more sustainable pieces, staple pieces, you know, like clothes that go with everything, like a white t-shirt or a good pair of jeans that won't really go out of fashion is great as well because you're buying longer lasting better quality fashion that you're not going to throw away when new trends roll around the real issue is that sustainable fashion comes with a price tag and so there's this huge class issue at play because how do those who can't afford super expensive sustainable brands then become a conscious consumer you've also got so much misinformation where brands like h&m and zara you know high street brands with a more affordable price tag are essentially marketing themselves as sustainable or having you know sustainable sections that you can shop in when they're anything but um I guess it's really nice that people are doing this but it's never really on the consumer it should be on the brand but back to the class issue that's where thrifting comes into play and shopping in charity shops and a lot of people do actually rely on charity shops and secondhand items to buy clothes thrifting I guess in some ways destigmatizes that but I guess you kind of have to ask yourself whether you're thrifting because you're trying to be genuinely sustainable in your you know shopping actions or whether you're doing it because it's the new trend or aesthetic to fit into right now and when it's not trendy you'll stop because if you are only donating and selling your clothes because it is trendy first of all you're affecting the people 
who rely on charity shops and secondly are you just going to revert back to throwing your clothes away when it's not trendy anymore so I think that that's where I guess maybe there's a slight issue with it so you've got to be quite careful with it I guess even the sustainable fashion industry is becoming more and more unsustainable so for example like you've mentioned Harini with people seeing secondhand clothing as a trend a lot of people buy masses of secondhand clothing and resell it on depop and vintage and ebay as like um, vintage clothing and these sites used to be really helpful for those who wanted cheaper clothing or even those who just wanted to shop sustainably and ethically but now it's kind of in a sense not sustainable or ethical because these people aren't selling clothes that they that don't fit them anymore they're just buying clothes for the sake of making money from it and this in turn ends up taking away a lot of choice from people who need to use charity shops and cheaper sustainable fashion. Another big point I think it's important to mention is the role of influencers and celebrities in the fashion industry. I was talking to a couple friends recently and I also read this piece um, at my university's newspaper, The Oxford Blue, on Vogue and how it went from being this pinnacle of fashion to sort of becoming a follower of trends rather than a trendsetter. Like Vogue now does these 73 question videos with celebrities, and I mean I love watching them myself, but it's clear that the celebrity influence on Vogue is huge. And also, even on the sustainability point, if you're an up-and-coming designer, perhaps like a more sustainable one, it's much harder to break into the industry and get noticed by these huge magazines unless you have, I guess, a celebrity promoting your brand. It's less about the fashion, as in the clothes, and more about the person wearing them and the it girls and the celebrities and that sort of culture. I think that's definitely true with Love Island influencers as well and the brand deals that they get coming out of the villa like normally PLT and brands like that give them out. I think it was Molly May and then this year it's Gemma Owen. I'm not sure. Um, but the point is that these influencers then go on to promote huge fast fashion consumption. Like PLT, Boohoo, Shein, these brands are just so unethical. On the same front, you've got Tasha, another girl who's left the villa this year, who's come out as an eBay ambassador which is for reusing clothes, it's more environmentally friendly, she's promoting secondhand clothes. But as far as I know, the deal didn't get as much hype on social media as the PLT ones do. Like, influencers have huge amounts of, well, influence, and it's kind of their responsibility to use it for good. And lots of celebrities also have broken into the fashion industry with their own clothing lines, but again, they'll still underpay their workers, let them work in horrible conditions, and then sell the clothes for vast amounts of profit and it's not fair and it's not ethical with tiktok taking over i feel like we mentioned tiktok in every single episode but it has influence as well um we're consuming media incredibly incredibly fast with with each scroll that we take through the 15 second videos and in terms of fashion it kind of means that everything is a trend right now you know you've got the y2k aesthetic the matilda jerf blazers galaxy leggings ballet flats whatever it is it's kind of in because you can be on these different sides of TikToks. And the sad thing is, you'd hope that this will kind of teach us not to overconsume and just sort of wear what you want and move on. But then as you move through the different sides of TikTok, you kind of feel like you have to fall into an aesthetic. 
And so then we are overconsuming and we feel like we have to label ourselves and dress a certain way. And it's really difficult to not succumb to that. It's also really important to note that fast fashion has essentially become rapid fashion in the last two, three years. Because we now see every month or every couple of weeks new clothing trends and aesthetics are emerging, mainly on TikTok and Instagram. Whereas before it at least took a few years for a new trend to come in and certain items are suddenly out of fashion and everyone starts considering them chuggy. And this is largely targeted at women because we don't see the same pressure from trends placed on men and boys. Um, Instead, you expect women and girls in the society to spend more on fashion. And since it's changing so rapidly, there's even more pressure to keep up with the trends and buy new clothes constantly. And within this, the, the... The issue of class is brought up once more because oftentimes you see poorer people, poorer women oftentimes, being shamed for buying from cheaper places, cheaper fast fashion places. So for example, Shein and Primark, even though the same pressure exists for working class or poorer women as it does for richer women. There's also a point to be made about consumer culture and capitalist culture and the idea that everything now has to be labelled, so even your identity based on what fashion you wear, because we see mainly on TikTok, again TikTok being the biggest culprit here, there's new labels every week coming out, um, new like aesthetics and looks that people are trying to fit into and it's a bit more of a philosophical point, but it's kind of like this human need to want to belong to a community and we naturally seek that out so of course in this really individualistic hyper consumer society people end up creating these looks and groups and labeling things as different aesthetics to artificially fit into so that they feel like they belong 100 percent on the consumer culture front because the way clothes are marketed make women feel like they have to consume in order to look a certain way fit into a certain standard or fit into a certain label and that is obviously propagated by influencer culture but it kind of feeds off women's insecurity and low self-worth in order to make people buy new clothes in the hope that they can sort of reinvent themselves or act the way that certain influencers and celebrities do which is totally unrealistic and promotes overconsumption to the point you end up in this vicious cycle and it's really really difficult actually not to fall for trends because of the way they're marketed at you I guess. That also links to modelling because of the way you know you see clothes on the models Um, and modelling is such a big issue and we could do a completely separate episode on it but long story short it is one of the only industries where women are more likely to be successful than men. Women's starting salaries are a lot higher than men and women well, female models are a lot more sought after. Like, a woman could essentially rely on modelling as a job, whereas a lot of male models have to supplement their income with part-time jobs as well, which I guess is good in terms of women's pay and stuff, but it's also incredibly sad because it's an industry where beauty is at the forefront, and so beauty pays rather than, like, a woman's intellect or skill. Not that modelling isn't skilled, but it's kind of sad that it's all about, you know, the face and body and that's what the whole industry is getting at and so then that obviously feeds into consumer culture no I fully agree I mean there are so many issues already in the modeling industry um 
you know, if we start talking about the toxicity of the modeling industry, we'd never stop. But I also think that it really does an interesting thing for the like the binary gender divide in the one way because many of these models are made to look in many ways androgynous. I mean, it comes and go almost like a fashion trend of having very thin, very straight body types rather than emphasizing things that then also come back in fashion, like wider hips, larger breasts. But also because having so many more models you know, it tells men that their looks aren't as important and therefore reaffirms again to women that their role in the patriarchy is fundamentally so much more dependent on their looks than a man. And same with the number of um, underwear models for women than men. You know, why does women's underwear have to be sexy and paraded around on largely nude women and men can just kind of buy it in a shop for less money and it's less of a an industry, it's less of a market. So again, reaffirming to women that they should look sexy at all times at their most vulnerable or when they're fully dressed or anything in between. Just generally the messages that the modelling industry sends are very seldom good ones. Same as obviously we're seeing the rise of having curvier models and more plus size models. But I mean, when Barbara Palvin was employed by Victoria's Secret, she was being described as a plus size model. She's very much not. Or, you know, she was described in one article and I remember reading it at the time because I was shocked. I think the adjective that they used was hefty. I don't know if you've ever seen a photo of Barbara Palvin. She's not. She looks as much like a Victoria's Secret angel as all of the others. I I can't see the difference. Um, and she was being described in these very derogatory ways with adjectives like hefty, all trying to plug it as a positive change for the industry and her being their first plus size model, um, which is complete rubbish. So I think that it's it's changed how we even view people's body types. So we really can't underestimate how important the modeling industry is for how women feel about themselves and how society is telling them to feel about themselves. Um, and knowing that they have that kind of power, I think they should do something much better with it than they currently are. That is all for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you have learned something new. And if you feel inspired to get involved, we welcome you to email us at admin at newslondon.co.uk. We are always looking for new people to interview and new articles to put onto our blog, which you can find at www.newslondon.co.uk. You can also check out our Instagram at news underscore LDN. That's all from us. This was the News Podcast.